I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk about the EU draft security strategy, the USMCA rapid response labor mechanism, and the Modi visit to the United States. All that and more on Trade Guys. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Trade Guys. This is Trade Guy Scott, and I want to tell you about a program that I'm part of, as is Bill, that's part of CSIS Executive Education. This may be a particular interest to those listeners who are not based in the D.C. area. We have a flagship course that we run a couple times a year called Understanding Washington, which helps people learn how to navigate this very strange environment of Washington, D.C. We are running it online this time, and we'll change the name and change the curriculum. It's called Decoding DC, Policy, Power, and People. And it's an exec ed course for those responsible for Washington relationships and understanding the Washington policy ecosystem. It will be a course that's uh, featured online only, July 18th through 20th. Then it builds directly off this flagship course called Understanding Washington. Lots of experts involved, including uh, Bill Ranch himself. We'll talk about regulation. We'll cover all the key functions of the federal government. And we'll do it in a way that's time efficient and will gain you a lot of uh, understanding. So it is July 18th through 20th. Registration information can be found at csis.org slash executive education. And right at the, right now, there is an early bird registration special that you can catch up between now and an Independence Day week. But if you're interested, please take a look at the materials online. If you've got a question, I'll be happy to answer it. But we'd welcome you, your participation in Decoding DC. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. I'm certainly planning on attending it. But anyways, good morning, trade guys. It's nice to see you both again. It seems you can't get rid of me, so that's a good thing. That's right. These things take time. Yeah, Andrew is busy, so here we are. But we're delighted to have you. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, the air quality here in D.C. Is, is fairly unhealthy, Scott. I hope it's better in North Carolina. But it's a perfect time for us to stay inside and talk about trade. Fair enough. So let's just right into it with the EU's new approach to economic security. The European Commission and the High Representative published a joint communication on a European economic security strategy that's meant to focus on, to quote the EU statement itself, minimizing risks arising from certain economic flows in the context of increased geopolitical tensions and accelerated technological shifts while preserving maximum levels of economic openness and dynamism. So let's dissect the strategy a little bit. Trade guys, can you tell me what the features of the draft strategy are? What's in it? Well, at 40,000 feet, they're focused on the obvious resilience of supply chains, including energy, where they've just had a dramatic experience of you know, energy fragility, thanks to Russia and its invasion of Ukraine, risks to physical and cybersecurity of critical infrastructure, risks to technology security and technology leakage, which really means export controls and investment, and the risks of weaponization of economic dependencies or economic coercion. These are all nice words that, without using the C word, China, really are talking primarily about China and about Russia and about lessons learned from COVID, lessons learned from the war in Ukraine, and also, frankly, lessons learned from the policies of the Trump administration, which really have flummoxed the, Europe the Europeans. I still have 
every conversation I have with Europeans, even now, three plus years later, is, you know, what happens if he wins again? And they're very concerned about that. So they're trying to prepare themselves for better, for the eventualities that we're all nervous about. I think in many respects, it mirrors what the Biden administration is trying to do as well, at least in terms of identifying the problems and the challenges that will probably end up dealing with them in some different ways. One of the things they've committed to do is, is an outbound investment review process where they are admittedly, by their own admission, behind us, a little farther along. And we can talk about that if, if Scott wants to later. I think that they also have to deal with, with the economic coercion issue. They've developed their own set of tools to deal with economic coercion because they saw what the Chinese have tried to do to the Lithuanians after the Lithuanians welcomed a Taiwanese office in Lithuania. And I think that, that they're in a situation on that one where they've got the tools, but now they have to decide if they're going to be basically bold enough to implement them. And I think the dilemma that they face on on a number of these areas is really defining their relationship with China, which is a separate document that is still being worked on and, and, and developed. In fact, the European EC, uh, European Union uh, ministers are meeting on that today and tomorrow, I believe, to try to uh, get it into better shape. Um, and, you know, there's some division of opinion here over not so much how to look at China, but how tough to be on China with some countries wanting to maintain a, a hard line and others, namely those that have the most significant economic stakes in China, either by through exports or by investment there, Germany probably being number one, that want to take, I think, a more cautious approach because they're worried about retaliation. So it's all a work in progress, but I think the, the ideas uh, really are uh, consistent with what the United States has been trying to do as well. Yeah. Look, I think Bill's right in terms of this being a parallel to the same pressures and some of the same policy ideas that are showing up in Washington. China, Europe is somewhat of a latecomer to concerns about China. They were wondering what we were so worried about a few just a few years ago, and I think they've realized it now. But ha having said that, the single market was probably the most important and beneficial economic initiative in the entire history of the European common market, going back to you know the coal and steel agreement among six uh, European nations. It, it was a it was really created prosperity. It created economic efficiency over a number of years. It's it was it's a magnificent accomplishment. But that was 1994. The single market was formed, and 30 years later, it's really in need of a second act. And I'm not exactly sure that this is the second act that will will help competitiveness and economic growth as much as, as that is really needed in Europe. So there are a number of other problems we've talked about, sort of their overall competitiveness, given the state of, uh, of energy security in, in Europe, which is quite limited. Some of it is, of course, related to Russian cheap Russian gas no longer being available. But, but if you look at the actions that Europe took on its own, more than 100 nuclear plants were closed or will close in, uh, in the next decade. Decade, in the past decade, including 30 in Germany and 34 in the UK. They're phasing out coal and they're finding that the, the alternatives are quite expensive and very volatile in cost. So they've got to deal with it with an energy shock that is 
in some ways self-inflicted, in other ways caused by, by circumstances. And we'll have to see the specifics of whether any of this actually helps them develop a higher level of resilience. Same goes for the United States, by the way. We talk about resilience and it's the, the jury's out, but we'll learn more over the, over the coming weeks and months. There's some institutional challenges for them as well that we don't face because it's not just about trade. Right. And to the extent it starts talking about export controls and technology transfer and investment, those are member state responsibilities under the, the single market. The commission deals with actual trade. But when you start talking about export control and investment decisions, those are member state responsibilities. And they kind of bleed over into each other. And uh, there's some tension here that you can see developing already over the individual member states saying, wait a minute, you know, the commission can't tell us what to do. This is our prerogative. At the same time, these are particularly, particularly on export controls, issues where multilateralism is everything. You know, if you're not all marching down the same path and doing the same thing, it's, it's like my successor at BIS, uh, Eric Hirshhorn, said, you're only damming half the river. So it's important that, that people be on the same page. So the commission has a herding cats problem on these issues of, of trying to assert authority where it really doesn't have the authority, but it can point, I think, convincingly to the need for everybody to act in unison. That requires a lot of handholding, a lot of cajoling, a lot of ego massaging, because part of it is, you know, part of it on the part of the member states is what I said earlier. It's it's pragmatic economics. You know, if you're heavily invested in China, uh, if you're a major exporter to China, you worry about what they're going to do if you start taking measures against them. On the other hand, if you're France, your motivation always is don't do anything that makes it look like you're following the American lead. Do your own thing. Even if you what you want to do is exactly what the <laughs> Americans are doing, you can't be in that position. It's a very complicated equation that not only is a debate about policy, but a debate about institutional prerogatives. And it's not at all clear to me how some of this is going to roll out. We, we've met on a number of occasions with the person on the commission who deals with investment issues. And uh, many of you may know him because it's Damien Levy, who was here uh, in the, the EU's commission delegation in Washington for a number of years, heading up the, the trade file. And now he's back running the investment part. And we've talked to him about how this works. And he said, basically, what the commission does on investment issues is they make recommendations. They try to keep track of proposed investments inbound now, but presumably outbound in the future. Mm -hmm. And what they end up doing is going to the member states and say, we suggest that you do X with respect to this proposal. Because an investment proposal is always country or country specific. You know, somebody is proposing to put money in a particular place for a particular purpose. But right now, right. what the commission does is, you know, advise and discourage. They don't command. And dealing with that is going to be an additional challenge. The United States really doesn't have that. You know, states, and there are Supreme Court rulings on this, states don't get their own foreign policy in America. States have to do what the federal government tells them to do. And when I was at the NFTC, we litigated that on a number of occasions successfully, arguing that states don't get to conduct their own foreign policy. The EU is different. States do get to conduct their own foreign policy. So on the need to multilateralize economic security policies, especially when it comes to export controls, as Eric puts it, unilaterally, it's like damming half the river. Do you think that on the long term, it does signal some sort of convergence between the US and the EU? Never mind what the French say. <laughs> well, they're getting, they're getting there. 
when I give speeches on this in Europe, I end up insulting everybody. Because <laughs> I, initially, I said, You're, you guys are five years behind the Americans in understanding what the Chinese are doing. Now I say they're only two years behind the Americans in understanding what the Chinese are doing. And in fact, it's what we're seeing. The, the trend is exactly what you said, Thibault. The trend is very clear in, in, the, in the direction that the United States has been going. And I think that increasingly the European countries, even those that don't want to do very much, understand the challenge that China poses to them. And there's been an evolution in thinking there. I think there's been some evolution in public opinion there, not to the extent that it's occurred here. But it's, they're moving in this direction. And But, you know, there's 27 of them and they're moving at different speeds. You know, if, you, if you're Lithuanian and have a, you're a victim of coercion, you're much farther down the road than the Germans are who have Volkswagen and, and Daimler and other auto companies heavily involved in China and are very worried about retaliation. Right. On, you know, on export controls, there, there have been multilateral fora uh, for cooperation. And so many of the European member states who, who are part of those various agreements do coordinate with the United States. It's not perfect and it's not an ideal match for the current problems, which are mostly in the leading edge technology space. So there's work to be done. Thanks, guys. So let's leave economic security behind for a moment. And next, I wanted us to talk about USMCA. The US apparently is ramping up its use of the USMCA rapid response labor mechanism, which was implemented in July 2021. According to USDR, it provides for expedited enforcement of workers' free association and collective bargaining rights at the facility level. However, between July 2021 and May 2023, only seven complaints were submitted to Mexico by the US, for example. However, the US now filed four cases in just the last month. So Trade Guys, can you tell us a little more about the response mechanism and, and why more cases have been filed uh, recently? Sure, look, we, this was a critical element of the politics of USMCA. So if I can go back, it was a long, long haul uh, policy debate over about 25 years of how to treat issues related to trade and labor and trade in the environment in United States free trade agreements. The original, the original NAFTA, as proposed, had had no binding obligations. There were cooperation committees, which for both labor and the environment, which proved unsatisfactory from a political standpoint and didn't do much from a policy standpoint. But the over the years, uh, that was 1991 or 92, and then uh, the, the side agreements, so-called side agreements, were an early in innovation of the Clinton administration in 93, which led to NAFTA's passage, but led to a breakdown in in cooperation uh, and uh, led to opposition by mostly the labor movement, but also other groups with concerns about trade. So it led to real sort of partisanship and, and a sharp divide in domestic politics with regard to free trade agreements. Over the years, the treatment of labor rights and the environment as they related to trade became more and more like commercial uh, disputes. But it turned out that by the time we made them basically fully equivalent, so labor cases and environmental cases were the same as a dispute over a commercial matter within a free trade agreement that the labor movement figured out it was actually this dispute settlement took a long time and wasn't very predictable and they didn't like it very much. When it came time to conclude USMCA and to sell it to the Congress and, and to get it, it its 
provisions approved, the political price was a revision to the labor mechanism on this particular area. And this is, it was a great political political achievement because it got the support of organized labor for the first time in decades for a trade agreement. So that's a good thing. Now, whether or not it's replicable anyplace else is something I've been scratching my head about since the USMCA provisions were approved. I don't think it is because it's one of the the few commitments that's not reciprocal. The United States took on no new obligations for this uh, accelerated process. It's only Mexico where it applies. So we'll see. I don't think it's been completely satisfactory to anyone, but it was price of the ticket in terms of domestic politics for USMCA's approval. Where we go from here, I I don't know. And I I don't want to comment on the specifics of the cases because that's but by and large, not well known. I think it's become a, um, a key bragging point for the administration, partly because Ambassador Tai had a big part in, you know, in negotiating the USMCA endgame when she was in the, um, on the Ways and Means Committee staff in, in the House. And it's, it's a reflection of the administration's priority on labor rights and, and worker rights. And I think from their point of view, it's been a success story. The cases that have been brought and concluded a good number of them, I mean, it's not a big number, but uh, most of them have ended up with, at least so far, favorable resolution from the American point of view. I think there's one where they've gone back for a second try, making the argument that the, the company in that case did not honor the commitments that it had made the first time. But for the most part, Ambassador Tai talks about this as a, as a success story. I think the small number is due, my guess is two things. One, this has come up in other contexts. USTA, USTR lawyers like slam dunks. They like cases that are sure winners. They don't like cases with problematic outcomes. And so they look for cases where the evidence is very strong. And that is a deterrent. And second, if you're going to do that, you have to you know, you have to produce the information that justifies setting the process in motion and justifies ultimately uh, convincing the Mexican government to act. That means you have to have a lot of evidence and obtaining and compiling that evidence, in a, particularly in a different country, is complicated. You can't count on cooperation. You probably can't co- cooper- count on cooperation from the, from the target for obvious reasons, but you can't always cooperate count on cooperation from uh, from the victims, from the workers who may be intimidated or may be apathetic and or may not even know what the opportunities are. So a small, you know, a residual theme in USTR lore for years going back into the, the 70s was, you know, why don't you bring more complaints? Why don't you bring more WTO complaints? Why don't you bring more 301 complaints? You know, why don't you litigate more? And the answer has been consistent. A, we want to do it when we know we're going to win, number one. And number two, we really can't do it unless we've got people coming to us with the information that we need to go forward. Uh, you know, USDR does not, it's not the FBI. They don't have an investigative staff, hundreds of people that can go out and look all this stuff up. But, you know, success builds success. And to the extent that they file these things and prevail, and they're fortunate right now to have a Mexican president who supports labor, you know, and, and supports the labor movement. I mean, the agreement was struck with his predecessor, but he's been, I think, sympathetic to these cases. And I think he's been sympathetic to more independent unions, which is what this is designed to achieve. So it's it's been kind of a win-win so far. USGR talks about replicating it. There was, uh, in 2021, there was talk about trying to build it into CAFTA, CAFTA-DR. They haven't done anything about that as far as I know. In fact, they haven't done anything about about it anywhere. 
but there has been talk, and it, it may well be that the, the talk will return, because I think from the administration's point of view, it's a success story. Yeah, Ambassador Jamie White in particular has been adamant about its success story, whether they replicate it or not. is a different story. But speaking of replications, we've had another important visit for international economics. Last week, we discussed the Blinken visit to China, and now we're going to talk about the Modi visit to the United States, uh, where he received a warm welcome from the Biden administration. Both visits clearly have a intertwined meaning for U.S. grant strategy, uh, in particular in the economic realm. Uh, both Bill and I have discussed that in our Rin pieces, a good proof that gray minds do think alike. Uh, but given the importance of the event, I think it's also worth discussing here. So trade guys, what is your reaction after the Modi visit? Was it productive, especially when it comes to trade? Well, you know, there are two cliches, Thibault. Great minds run on the same channel and fools think alike. So you can, you, you can take your pick in this particular case. However, listeners, I recommend Thibault's critical questions piece, which dissects both visitors and has a much better title than my column. I think his is a tale of two visits, right? A tale of two visits. I'm very proud of that one. Well, you should be. And it's, it's worth reading. I would just say that it, it produced more concrete results than I expected. How concrete they are kind of remains to be seen, but they struck a bunch of deals, semiconductor investments, Micron for one, critical minerals, technology, space cooperation. There's a deal to allow General Electric to produce jet en engines in India that will go on Indian military aircraft. U.S. Navy ships will be able to stop in Indian shipyards for repairs under a maritime agreement. India is going to buy U.S.-made drones, armed drones. I mentioned the Micron investment. We promised to make it easier for uh, skilled Indian workers to obtain and renew U.S. Visit visas. I'm not sure how we're going to implement that yet. That's maybe controversial in the Congress, but I think it would be a good thing. We also, <clears throat> trade-specific, I think to the surprise of everybody, because this is not predicted, the two sides agreed to bring to an end six outstanding cases of the WTO. You know, we've been suing each other for years, and we collectively terminated six cases, three, three the United States had brought against India and three that India had brought against the United States. The main one was a steel and aluminum one where the Indians, based on, you know, on the Trump tariffs, where the Indians terminated the case they brought against us for our tariffs, and we terminated the retaliation case that we brought against them for the tariffs they imposed against us. The interesting thing about that, though, and I'll stop with this, was that while the Indians agreed to drop the retaliation, which makes the walnut people uh, and the lentil people and the chickpea people very happy, along with some others, we did not agree to uh, drop the steel and aluminum tariffs. So they're still there. And I think Leaving aside the merits of, of all that, I would say just from a negotiating standpoint, the U.S. got the better of that deal. Now, if you think about it from the Defense Department standpoint, if you look at the technology we're transferring, particularly jet engine technology, I would say the, the Indians got a way better deal on that. And uh, the column I wrote on it suggests that this may very well come back to bite us because I'm not sure the Indians are going to end up being a permanent and constant defense ally. I mean, right now they are, but they have a long history of pursuing, as they should, their own interests. Their own interests do not always align with ours. So we'll see. I think both sides win, at least in the short term. And, uh, and it was a much more specific set of agreements than I expected. Look, I think this is a positive. I think good relations with India is a, is a great idea. India is not only already the largest by population nation in the world, they have very healthy demographics and a longstanding, peaceful, multi-ethnic democracy. We ought to get along with each other. 
and we have over the last several presidents, which is, I think, a good thing. Now, there have always been trade problems with India. For a founding member of the GATT, they have relatively few obligations. They're usually the last to agree to much of anything in multilateral talks. So there's a bargaining history that is unpleasant for anybody on the U.S. side. And look, they'll never have the economic efficiency at scale that we've become accustomed to in a place like China, mostly because their states have relatively powerful leaders. There's lots of, much like the U.S., there are many elements of policy which are under the control of the Indian states, not not at the national government. They also have a, a really... Both the power infrastructure and the transport infrastructure are not what they need to be to deliver the kind of efficiency that we've expected in a lot of the Southeast Asian economies. So it's a different story. However, the people of India ought to have a a happy relationship with the people of the United States. And this is a way of seeing that move forward. So I, 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 I find very little to criticize about this. I hope we can keep it together as it goes forward. There always will be frustrations, but the U.S.-India relations ought to be better than they have been over the decades, and I hope they're better in the future. Yes, at a time when we're looking for allies, it seems like they're a good candidate, at least for now. Definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm less optimistic than Scott is about that, but they march to their own tune and have always. I think right now we're at a point where our mutual interests align, particularly with respect to China. They appear not to with respect to Russia. That remains a work in progress. And we'll see for the long term. But uh, advanced technology, once transferred, can't be taken back. So what's done is done. Wise words from the ex-leader of the Export Administration. Bill and Scott, thank you so much for another good episode i'll see you guys next week to talk about other trade topics but in the meantime i hope you have a good week thank you thank you and you too Tibo. to our listeners if you have a question for the trade guys write us at tradeguys at csis.org that's tradeguys at csis.org we'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.